0: National Security This Week: A weekly look at American national security issues, and now your host, John Olson.
1: And good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, December 27th of 2023, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together here Wednesdays on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. We're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to explore national security challenges and opportunities. So this episode finishes out three years of weekly broadcasts here on National Security this week. But before we finish out or excuse me, 2023, I thought we might take a look at national security challenges and opportunities that are happening all around the world today. Uh, before we press forward with that, I'd like to frame today's discussions by citing a recent Bloomberg column by the famous historian Max Hastings. In that column, which he writes monthly, Max Hastings took a look at the state of the world and remarked on how many crises have erupted many of which have shifted into open conflict. And he cites the armed conflict study from the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London as his source, and he says there are 183 regional and local conflicts underway in just 2023 alone, the highest number in three decades. To learn more about what's happening around the world today, our guest is Tom Hansen. Tom Hansen currently serves as the chair of the Minnesota Committee on Foreign Relations. He's a former U.S. Foreign Service officer with the Department of State whose diplomatic postings included East Germany, France, Norway, the Soviet Union, Sweden, and the former Soviet Republic of Georgia. He also participated in the opening of new U.S. embassies in Mongolia and Estonia, worked on the foreign relations committees of the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives, and served as director for NATO and European affairs at the Atlantic Council of the United States in Washington, D.C., Tom also serves in academia, is currently diplomat in residence at the Elworth Institute for International Affairs at the University of Minnesota Duluth. Additionally, Tom Hansen serves as co-chair of the Minnesota China Business Council. As a member of the Great Decisions Advisory Committee of Global Minnesota, Tom Hansen speaks frequently on international issues and contributes to local and international media. He's also a member of the U.S. Foreign Policy Working Group of the British International Studies Association, as well as the Council of Advisors at the Museum of Russian Art. Tom Hansen holds a Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Minnesota and a graduate degree from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, as well as the Institute of Advanced International Studies in Geneva, Switzerland, and the National School of Administration in Paris, France. Tom Hansen, welcome back to National Security This Week.
0: John, thanks so much. It's great to be here and uh, really an honor. To to be here for the this program, having done the first one long yeah, ago. That's right. In fact, y- and, just as a yeah, quick reminder, so many great programs since. Yeah. I mean, it's just been amazing.
1: So, a quick recap of that first show here on National Security Week. Back then, we were just a thirty-minute show. Frankly, I don't think we tapped into your expertise nearly enough right out of the gate. We learned very quickly, uh, Jeff Johnson and I, that uh, who's sitting across the, the the table from us today, running the booth for us, uh, that thirty minutes really wasn't going to cut it uh, for an in-depth show like like the one we were creating uh on that first show you joined us to discuss about some things that were happening world affairs at the time we we did it as sort of a preview for your foreign policy update that you do each year with global minnesota i'd like to talk about that more later in the show but that first show happened (laughs) on january 6th of 2021 uh and we won't assign correlate we can assign correlation to that date but but not causation it is suspicious yeah so So, do you call that first show here on national security this week
0: you know very well and uh you know, just to pick up first on on the Max Hastings uh, article, you know, it, it, January last year, uh, the World Economic Forum in Davos, you know, they have a, a name each time they meet you know, the global elite, and "polycrisis" ah. was the term they gave to the era we were heading into, and they were so right. So yeah, so January sixth, twenty twenty one, it was a time of great tumult in our domestic affairs, which is ongoing to some extent. It was the eve of the Biden inauguration, and so. There was a lot of speculation about what changes would come uh, in the transition from Trump. Um, COVID was a big focus back then, how that would affect uh, supply chains. Uh, We speculated that that Biden would put more emphasis on alliances, Mm -hmm. and of course he has. Uh, In fact, there's a great quote from Jake Sullivan uh, who said, if Ronald Reagan uh, focused on – American strength, uh, peace through American strength. Biden focuses on peace through American and allied strength. Yeah. I mean, it's really integral to what they're doing. Uh, there was speculation about what we would do with Iran, whether we go back to the Iran nuclear deal. And very importantly, uh, at that juncture, we were beginning to realize that China might be moving ahead of us right. in high tech, in quantum and in AI especially and right about when we were speaking a big study came out uh, for the US Congress affirming that yeah. and that's been a big element of what's happened since uh, our our reaction to this China challenge
1: yeah and you also joined us on a on a second show in August of 21 as the US was withdrawing from Afghanistan Bill Dabney also served on on that uh, on that show with us uh, that was frankly a, a fascinating conversation about the challenges a US embassy country team has in implementing a drawdown in a time of crisis, let alone a full evacuation of American uh, personnel, much like a non-combatant evacuation operation, which uh, you and I both know, uh, know about well. As you look back on that second show that you joined us for, do you have any thoughts today on the outcome of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan? Well,
0: yeah, I mean, it's, it's totally faded away from uh, our media attention. It's been replaced very quickly with other things. But it is true that Biden's polling numbers went down, significantly, uh, I think from 49% to 43% uh, in the aftermath of Afghanistan, and they have not come back. Now, whether, and they've gone down since, they're on 38 now. Uh, I don't think it's a cause and effect, but it's interesting that it was kind of an inflection point early in the administration. Um, You know, what happened there was preordained by the deal that was struck back in August 2020, uh, the Trump administration basically made a deal with the Taliban that if if they didn't attack us, we wouldn't attack them. They were free to attack uh, the Afghan uh, forces, um, and so uh, and as we pointed out at that in that show, we really never knew who was whom in 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 Afghanistan. It's it's such a tribal feudal society yeah. that uh, the collapse probably had been quietly underway for for, for quite some time. Um, in one aspect of Afghanistan, uh, you know, we froze uh, Afghanistan's central bank assets, $7 billion worth, and we took a real uh, soft power hit by doing that. Uh, uh, the UN protested, even our European allies protested that we were withholding money from Afghanistan, which was entering a severe economic uh, disruption and downturn. We have since freed up half of it. Uh, there's a Swiss fund which is slowly giving money for humanitarian purposes to afghanistan um, but you know we um we have frozen uh russian assets since uh so th- this is an aspect of our foreign policy now that that that, that we're seeing more and more and as i say we, uh, a lot of people out in the world thought we were not doing the right thing and freezing their assets yeah
1: Uh, The challenge with that conflict, of course, is is, uh, the implosion of the Afghan government, uh, Uh, the the security forces, uh, even the national police happened, I mean, just incredibly fast. Yes. Which tells me that 20 years spent trying to build those things up didn't last very long in the end. And it was pretty clear that the Taliban were receiving— help from external actors. I yes. think our our listeners can probably guess that that was probably Russia and China at the time because yeah. Our, yeah. And our relations I, were so bad. Uh, and
0: and I think after that 2020 agreement that we made with the Taliban, I think there were a lot of deals made uh, in in the in those two years or one year before it collapsed. And of course, since then, uh, China has moved in, a huge mining deals. Right. Uh, there are meetings sort of back Pakistan, China, Afghanistan meetings, in Afghanistan now will join the BRICS. Right. So uh, we kind of lost a footprint in Central Asia. Yeah. And um, uh, so they're, 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 even though it's not in the press, there have been some quiet uh, geopolitical results right. from this.
1: So that brings us up to today, the last show of 2023. Uh, between Inauguration Day in, uh, in January 21 and today, speaking from your experience as a career foreign policy expert from the U.S. Department of State, and that's, by the way, where people serve administrations and support foreign policy initiatives, regardless of their own po- political affiliation. What similarities have you seen in U.S. foreign policy between the Trump and Biden administrations? I mean, tr- I think mm-hmm. traditionally, when the United States president makes policy, the next president continues that policy unless there's a really good
0: reason to change it. So I think, I think people are going to be amazed to hear your, similarities. your, your thoughts here. Yeah, <laughs> because people often think of a kind of a sharp divide. But no, I think there are you know when one thinks about it, there are some pretty pretty important similarities the The, the Biden team has continued and even doubled down on tariffs. Mm-hmm. They really have retained all of the trump tariffs um, and they 've added a lot of economic uh pressure on china, uh, especially in the in the area of high tech um, looking at what the trump team seems to be foreshadowing were he to win. Uh, there would be even a further doubling down if Trump comes back. He's talking about an, an across-the-board 10% tariff on goods, that sort of thing. So there, there's a continuity there. Um, you know, Anthony Blinken picked up on a lot of Mike Pompeo's uh, verbiage. For example, on on Xinjiang and the Uyghurs, he he used the word genocide. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pompeo was the first to do that. Blinken picked up on it. Um, on Ukraine, uh, people don't realize the extent to which the Trump administration uh, armed and supported Ukraine. Uh, Obama was reticent to do that, to send lethal arms. Uh, Even though there was the romance between Trump and uh, Putin, at the working level we were supporting Ukraine strongly, and, of course, the Biden team has done that. Something that, that, as I think about it, something that really is a, a continuity is the whole idea of a league of democracies, the idea of democracy versus autocracy. Pompeo was all about that. Uh, Biden picked it up. But it goes back even further. Both McCain and Romney, when they ran for president, had a League of Democracies as one of their main foreign policy planks. And lo and behold, Biden picks up on it because I think one of his main uh, framing devices for the era we're in is this autocracy versus democracy. He sees a lot of the conflicts in that. And then finally, um, Trump's first visit as president was to Saudi Arabia. When Biden came in, he was at odds with Saudi Arabia, uh, with with Mohammed bin Salman after the Khashoggi assassination. But lo and behold, now in the past year, he has shifted gears, is putting a lot into the Saudi relationship, trying to get the Saudis and and um, Israelis to reconcile. So there again, continuity. Yeah,
1: uh, and I do want to return back to that discussion of uh, U- U.S., uh, Israel, and Saudi oh, Arabia. But uh, oh,
0: yeah.
1: um, let, I, I want to hit on some other things. Let. As the historian Max Hastings hinted at in his Bloomberg piece, the world seems to be working hard to sort of tear itself apart at the seams right now. Uh, It would be ideal if the United States, seen as the global leader of the free world really since World War II ended, uh, didn't suddenly step back uh, from that leadership role and allow the world to implode. That's my personal opinion. Mm -hmm. Uh, The event that maybe triggered the growing number of open conflicts uh, in the world today may be Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and the seemingly endless number of war crimes that uh, the Russian military has committed and continues to commit uh, in that conflict. How, how do you see that uh, conflict today, the Russian invasion of Ukraine? I know you spent time in the old Soviet Union. You've got experience in uh, in, in serving in Europe as a as a diplomat. Uh, you were in uh, Georgia. Uh, there are some serious uh, challenges right now for Georgian security uh, with regard to Russia. Uh, how, how do you—I mean— this is a challenge because Russia is always thinking about their near-abroad. We, we recognize that. But how they act towards their near-abroad and and whatnot is, is, a, is a huge challenge. How, how, do you, how do you see this
0: conflict right now? It's very complex. Um, it's been, you know, the crisis really has been building since the 1990s slowly. Uh, the Russians never really accepted NATO expansion, uh, which Bill Clinton uh, decided on back in the mid-'90s. Um, You know, and the Russians also make a special case of Ukraine. You know, you got there near abroad, but Ukraine uh, seems to be historically other reasons, just a particular obsession, uh, especially for Putin. As as you look at his uh, his speeches, Um, you know what they did was a total violation of international law by any standards. Um, Many people think it was a mistake for Russia. I mean, uh, some experts think it's the biggest mistake of Russian. Uh, statecraft since the 1905 war with Japan, yeah. which yeah. once where they asked, underestimated a an adversary, um, and and where this where this is going to go uh, is very hard to tell right now. NATO has been strengthened. Uh, the Biden team has done a great job of alliance management, and here they you know they have fulfilled their promises to rely more on the allies. Um, You know, uh, Germany has had what they call their Seitenwende, another major shift in their policy. They're much more supportive now. They're doing things that uh, – sending troops to the Baltics, uh, sending arms to Ukraine that they wouldn't have done before. Um, And, of course, Finland and Sweden – are coming now into NATO, which is a major strengthening, and there 's a lot now uh, underway trying to bring NATO into greater contact with our allies in Asia, mm-hmm. especially South Korea and Japan. so all these things are are a strengthening of the west and and uh, and the Biden team has made it clear that you know this is western uh, resolve we are the indispensable nation yes we are leading this, um, and uh, it 's kind of a test in some ways. The problem is that uh, things are not going well on the ground in Ukraine right, right. now. Yep. We've sent them a lot of um, sophisticated weaponry. Uh, we're, we're providing them with F-16s. But this is a ground war like World War I. It's a grinding slog. Um, we haven't fought a war like this since 1945. And as a result, we're not prepared. Yeah. We don't have the ammunition stocks. Right. That we need uh, to keep the Ukrainians going. And it'll take a long time for us to build those back up. In addition, Ukraine, uh, I mean, there are some estimates that the population, which was at 40 some million, may be as low as 20 now. Um, I mean, there's been a lot of losses, but also people leaving. A lot of women and children have left. Mm -hmm. They lack manpower. And General Zaluzhny, who's the head of the Ukrainian forces, has really for the past six to eight months been making this clear in interviews like with The Economist that uh, that something has to be done to to solve this they 're talking about mobilizing five hundred thousand more, um, but I mean the average age right now I think is forty six for uh, a lot of young ukrainians have been have been killed, the initial manpower so uh, it 's hard to see how this is going to go forward now um, how, how NATO can support Ukraine in those basic uh, issues of ammunition and manpower. Yeah. Uh, we're not about to send NATO troops in. Nope. Um, and so, uh, so the next year is going to be very, very uh, difficult, I think. Russia is making gradual advances. I think that the Russian, not to go on too long about this, but I think that Russia's goal, uh, I believe that initially the goal was to frighten the Ukrainians into striking a deal. Uh, you know, they didn't send enough troops toward Kiev to really Conquer uh, it. Really was a kind of a symbolic thing, and of course they got decimated right. north of Ukraine. Since then, they reverted to trying to seize uh, about twenty percent of uh, of eastern Ukraine along the Black Sea. What 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 Putin calls Nova Russia, New Russia, which is where um, a lot of the industry is, a lot of the best agricultural right. land, and of course that that vital coast. So I think that th- that the idea will be for them to try to hold on to that. I think they do want to take Odessa, and that's, that that will be a, a battle if they yeah. really try to take Odessa because uh, NATO does not want them nope. to have that port at yeah. all yeah. because, you know, Russia then controls that part of the Black Sea. So, um, and Putin is saying that he will not negotiate with the Ukrainians. He considers them a puppet government. So he's kind of signaling that the final negotiation will be with the U.S., mm. And that's, that's kind of a maximalist position. He, I don't think he wants to take the rest of Ukraine. Western Ukraine uh, really is very different from the Russian-speaking eastern part. And the Russians know that they would never be able to stabilize Western Ukraine, Lviv. Yeah. So I think that they want to keep what they have and create a dysfunctional rump state um, and then move forward from there. But we, it, it's a, this is a real problem for U.S. foreign policy. China is interwoven into all of these oh, issues right. these days, yeah. and in Washington, there's a great fear that if we give ground to Russia, any ground really, right. this sends a signal to China on Taiwan. Right. And so, actually, the China factor may be the thing that really keeps us going in spite of everything. It's a you know it's a little bit like the domino theory, right? During the during the Vietnam War, and uh, you know, opinions are divided about what. China is learning from Ukraine. Some experts think that they're actually becoming more cautious because of Ukraine, because they see the problems the Russians have. Right. Uh, China's not fought a, a real war since 1979 against, right. <laughs> against Vietnam. They really don't know how their troops would perform. Yeah. And so, um, but anyway, it's going to be a very difficult year ahead, and I, just looking at the politics, I can't imagine the Biden team allowing any, even a symbolic uh, stepping back uh, in Ukraine, because on the heels of Afghanistan, so through the election, yeah. through our election, I, I, I just don't see us giving ground at all, or the Russians. And, of course, the Russians are waiting to see who wins the in election in 2024. That's yeah. right. That's right
1: uh the interesting thing i think is that uh, the european union uh, and our and our nato allies uh, uh w- which in many cases are, are both <laughs> uh ha- has tried to really reinforce their support for ukraine yeah um there are a number of d- other countries besides the united states that are looking at giving f16s uh, yes. to the ukrainian air force that will significantly improve their Even Japan is sending that, up p uh, right. assets so it'll it'll support the uh you know provide air support for ground combat operations yeah. which the Ukrainians really didn't have in right. this past summer offensive. And the Ukrainian ground forces encountered some of the most densely laid minefields, in-depth right. minefields and, and other traps that, you know, nobody was really prepared for, more than we'd ever seen in any uh, ground yeah, campaign. That's in the absolutely past.
0: right. And and I, and I think we can provide that kind of a Infrastructure for them. The problem is they no longer have the ground forces. Right. Yeah, the, the, you know, the key the key brigades, uh, the militias that were the heart of their their fighting force yep. have been decimated. Right. In 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 the conflict yeah. heretofore. Yeah. So it's the man. You know, at one point, John, the poles were talking about sending in troops. Oh.
1: I, I I actually did not hear. About yes,
0: that. and I and actually the former uh, Secretary General of NATO Folk Rasmussen was strongly advocating this and. The Biden administration had to very clearly say, no, this right. is a NATO operation. You will not do uh, a national. Uh, yeah. you know, so, um, no, it's going to be a real dilemma. I mean, uh, you know, Putin uh, is a judo expert. Right. And he <laughs> slowly kind of got Ukraine in a vice, And the question is, how do we get it out?
1: Right. So one last point on this uh, situation in Ukraine. <clears throat> Ukrainian special ops commandos, they're sort of – There's a report that came out of uh, uh, the Times of London talking about that that these special ops uh, forces from Ukraine are are sort of freelancing top-secret sabotage missions uh, inside Russia and that this has been going on for some time now. So the Ukrainians are not just worrying about the battlefield, the front line. They're actually trying to get in behind Russian lines inside Russia going after key nodes. Is that a problem?
0: Well, you know, there have been some very high-level assassinations Yes, there have <laughs> in in russia and there have been i mean you know at least one bridge that was blown up uh toward crimea was it was not hit by a missile it was a uh, on the ground operation yeah. you know a basic uh point is that the ukrainians don't tell us everything right and to some extent they don't trust even us uh and so washington uh, is not always fully aware of and i mean it's an independent nation not and uh, and they're they're conducting this war. You know, we we have always said that it's up to the Ukrainians to decide. You know, we're going to back them all the way, um, and they're the ones who will decide when when they negotiate or not. Uh, and of course, Zelensky is still saying we're going for total victory. Right. Um, and there are rumors that th- th- there's trouble brewing between Zelensky and this head of the military, Zaluzhny, yeah. um, and that bears watching in the coming year too. There's some instability. Um, in Kiev that wasn't there a year ago. Right. Well, that'll happen
1: when you're taking the kind of losses that they have. Absolutely. In defending their country.
0: Absolutely,
1: John. Uh, For our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. I'm your host, John Olson, and our guest today is Tom Hansen, president of the Minnesota Committee on Foreign Relations. And we're looking at crises around the world. Uh, so let me ask you this, Tom. Uh, we've just been talking about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I have one last question on that. If, in your view. If the U.S. fails to support Ukraine and Ukraine either falls or is forced to to allow their nation to be partitioned after this Russian aggression, any further comments on the stakes? Well. Considering what we just talked about with mass hate, Max Hastings and yes. the world sort of tearing, tearing itself apart. Yeah, I mean,
0: uh, you know, it, it could give pause to some countries looking to the U.S. for total support, right? I mean— um, uh, you know, I'm not a, a totally adherent of, of the domino theory because each each conflict is different. But totally, um, yeah. I you know, there's a lot of talk now also from Washington about how the Russians won't stop. They'll go on to the Baltic states. Um, I, I tend to doubt that. I, I think that I think that for Putin, he wants to pin down uh, the Ukraine situation. But beyond that, he's looking east. He's looking into Eurasia. He's looking toward relations with China. Central, uh, Central Asia, Iran, um, North Korea, if you will. I frankly very much doubt that they would risk attacking a NATO country with Article 5 guarantees. Yeah. Um, I don't think they're that dumb uh, um, for all of Putin's faults. So I think that the problem is that uh, th- that this could stabilize with Russia holding on to what it has now. Um, the rest of ukraine is uh, is dysfunctional, and then everyone in NATO is a little more nervous right. about the future, um, and especially with the uncertainties uh, in Washington now with our election cycle, because as we know, Trump uh, has a very different view yeah. of alliances right. um, and so yeah, I think, I think that that's the kind of kind of melancholy result yeah. we would have. So let's shift
1: uh, to America's what I think is America's most significant long-term strategic challenge, and, that, and that's obviously the People's Republic of China. You've been a China watcher for many, many years. Uh, China has been building its military prowess for the last two decades, I would say. I mean, really a concerted effort. Uh, you mentioned before uh, the, the People's Liberation Army; it's a pretty formidable force on paper. <clears throat> Excuse me, China hasn't really had a a large scale war since they invaded Vietnam in 79, and, and by, they were, by the way, soundly defeated by the Vietnamese on the battlefield. So we really don't know how effective the PLA would be in a major theater war, but it's probably best if we don't actually have to find out, right? <laughs> uh, China has been bullying Taiwan with air and naval forces for, for many years now. It, it sort of ramps up and ramps down. I think it's, right now it's at a little bit mo- more of a lull uh, because Taiwan is in the midst of their presidential elections. But China has been putting intense pressure on the Philippines, uh, specifically over what's called Second Thomas Shoal, which is part of the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea. So how do you see this this situation unfolding? I mean, the Philippine Coast Guard and supply vessels as well as Philippine fishing vessels— They've been aggressively harassed by Chinese Coast Guard ships as well as vessels from China's maritime militia. You've seen shouldering uh, operations happening where uh, a ship will actually come up and sort of rub another ship. Uh, You've seen fire hoses sprayed, you know, incredible amounts of high-pressure water onto the decks of the Philippine ships. Uh, President Xi Jinping and President Biden met in San Francisco recently recently. Uh, with an open and honest dialogue, uh, seeking to cool tensions. Uh, but now the rhetoric that's coming out of uh, Beijing, including directly from Xi Jinping, is, is pretty strong. Where Where is the U.S.-China relationship today? And what do you see the Biden administration doing to try to contain China and to deter them from making any military moves in the South China Sea or against
0: Taiwan? Well, I, I think the relationship is on a slow burn. Um, I think there's less danger of an escalation into kind of a major conflict, at least in the present, major conflict, less than, say, in the Middle East. I think, I think that's where we really have to watch the danger of a, a larger war. Um, you know, there is a bit of a flashpoint coming up on January 13th. Uh, there'll be an election in Taiwan. Right. And the the, the main candidate, uh, Lai Ching-te, who is the vice president now, uh, is a strong, uh, not not quite for independence, but for uh, for the sovereignty of of, of Taiwan. So th- the Chinese are likely to react to his election with at least temporarily stepped up pressures. And as you said, toward the Philippines, uh, yeah, they've been getting increasingly uh, uh, aggressive. You know, the Philippines go back and forth. The previous government was actually uh, very mild on China. Now you've yeah. got a harsh. I think the Chinese see, you know, these smaller Asian countries going back and forth, and they're just kind of keeping the pressure up. You know, speaking with Chinese officials, um, I think that their line now or kind of how they present themselves to us, and I think this is how they present themselves to the Biden team, is that they have prior, three priorities. Um, number one is relations with the U.S., which they want to keep within a certain band. They know that there are tensions that aren't going to go away and there's going to be up and down, but they want to keep the relationship from spiraling all the way downward. Yeah. Uh, I think that's in their interest. I think it's in our interest, too, and I think that's why there was the Biden-She uh, meeting in san francisco their second priority um is relations in asia uh they are most of their trade now is shifting toward the global south and toward asia there's something called the regional comprehensive economic partnership which was signed two years ago which is a and and most of our allies are in this japan yep. it, it, this is a major framework yeah, now. even trade. india
1: i think is in that india
0: is, is in but is kind of holding back okay they're holding back a bit they're not fully engaged Uh, And of course, we're out of the game. I mean, we're building up militarily, but we're out of the game economically. Right. This is what happens when we withdrew
1: from the Trans Pacific Partnership.
0: Yes. And, you know, in 2016, it wasn't just Trump. Hillary had also turned against the TPP. And it was Obama's idea. Right. We, you know, the idea of opening up our economy is just anathema to the Congress. I know. know. You know, and and that's just, you know, how it is. So, anyway, so the second priority is Asia. And then the third one, they say, um, is looking toward Eurasia, the Belt and Road, uh, Russia, which is important, and, you know, they'll even say that, you know, Russia is important for balancing the U.S. But they're not going to let that uh, mess up relations with the U.S. That, that's the line anyway, and I'm sure that's what they said to uh, to President uh, Biden. You know, our main pressure point on, on China right now is in technology, you know, semiconductor restrictions. Um, we're, we're trying to slow down, Uh, their tech economy. I mean, Jake Sullivan has said we want to maintain a a, a clear lead uh, because all of these weapons have military implications. And so even if the Chinese military is questionable, if they do move ahead of us uh, in hypersonic weapons or in uh, quantum-based, whoever gets a lead in that area will have an advantage. Um, And so we're trying very hard to prevent that. Um, You know, one of the main Uh, outcomes of the meeting in San Francisco, Uh, in addition to uh, reestablishing military-to-military contacts, which I think is very important, fentanyl.
1: Yeah, that's right. The
0: number one issue for us with China is fentanyl, because all of the components of fentanyl come from China. And after the Pelosi visit, Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, the Chinese ceased all cooperation with us on fentanyl. 103,000 Americans died of fentanyl last year. It's going to be higher this year. It's a big issue going into the campaign. Yeah. So the Chinese have agreed to get back to some degree of cooperation uh, on you know, going after the criminal groups. I mean, Washington assesses that it's not the Chinese government doing this. No, it's triads. It, it's not like they're trying to get revenge for the opium <laughs> wars of the 19th century. But it's, it's criminal groups in China. Uh, so I think the relationship is, as I say, on a slow burn um, – China is—we're both reorienting away from ourselves, yep. each other, I mean, uh, uh, economically, and that's going to be, I think, a trend for a good while to yeah. come. A
1: couple of other things that have been happening. Uh, there's an article that came out. Uh, the Chinese government recently officially renamed Tibet as Xizang mm-hmm. uh, in official diplomatic documents. So that's uh, essentially, uh, you know, fait accompli at this point now for, for Tibet. Uh, the Dalai Lama is 88 years old. We'll see. We'll see what happens if they— they're able to appoint a new one. And yeah. uh, Chinese uh, uh, state oil, China state oil uh, and chemicals giant Sino Sinochem, yeah. just uh, because the U.S. used sanctions, certain sanctions, just bought Venezuelan oil.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, – and, and, you know, I, I mean, having been to, uh, to Lhasa, Tibet, and also to Chinese Mongolia, you know, the Chinese pattern is just simply – Use demographics, yeah. to control. And so when you go to Tibet, you know downtown Lhasa is Tibetan, but the, all, all the sub, everything around it is all Chinese, and increasingly so. Uh, and Mongolia long since. So and uh, you know Xinjiang with the Uyghurs less so. The Uyghurs are still a little more a dominant group there, but but that's the future trend there as well.
1: Yeah. Demographics is a powerful force. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Let's shift over to the
1: Middle East for a few minutes. Uh, Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. Uh, we've had uh, near-continuous combat operations by the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, uh, against Gaza ever since, and that's actually expanded because Israeli cross-border operations to attack Hezbollah positions in southern Lebanon, and the Golan Heights, I, I-, I believe, uh, to curtail Hezbollah's activities uh, as well ha- have been happening. And finally, the Houthis in Yemen are attacking maritime shipping in in the Red Sea. What's your overall take on this situation? Before you say that, I'd like to say this about the conflict. Uh, Hamas is a declared terrorist group, as is Hezbollah. The actions taken by Hamas on October 7th were unquestionably horrific. They crossed a a significant line even for a a terror group. Uh, There's video evidence that has been taken from body cameras worn by Hamas terrorists as they slaughtered men, women, and children. Uh, in their homes and at the outdoor concert in, in very horrific uh, ways on that day. But the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has been ongoing since really 1948 uh, when the United States recognized uh, the state of Israel. Uh, lots of nuance to where this situation is and where it should go. What, what's your take on things?
0: Boy, I mean, there's so much to say about this, John. Yeah, really. I mean, it's, as you say, there's so much history, uh, regional dynamics um, it gets into the global economy when you start talking about their shipping through the Red Sea. So it's a very uh, crucial situation and one that's dangerous. Th- as I say, in contrast to China, I think this one could potentially explode. So, um, yeah, what what Hamas did uh, was horrific. It was barbarous. There's no justification for it at all. Um, it is true that in Gaza, the uh, Hamas uh, has tunnels. They're, they're hiding in hospitals. And, of course, the Israelis are saying, look— if we're going to get at Hamas, we, you know, we got to. Whatever's between us and them is, and and of course, the result though is twenty one thousand. Yeah, so far. Uh, deaths so far, maybe yeah. fifty five to sixty thousand uh, injured. Yeah. These are very high numbers, so um, it's a tragic situation, uh, and and hopefully we'll we'll ramp down soon. I know the U.S. policy is trying to. Our, our key foreign policy aides met with Ron Dermer yesterday, former ambassador uh, of Israel, uh, I think, to really send the message that, that uh, this has got to ramp down here soon. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, a, a, an editorial by uh, Benjamin Netanyahu in the Wall Street Journal on Christmas Day uh, laid out Israel's three goals, which are uh, totally destroy Hamas, which they're in the process of doing, demilitarize Gaza, and then, uh, this one is a tricky one, um, th- that that Palestinian society must be de-radicalized. Yeah. That is a very long-term goal when you think about it. Um, and there are some reports that, that Israel is c- contacting other countries to see if they won't actually take people from Gaza, if they're allowed to get out. I, I know that Israel, I think, wanted Egypt to open up the border, Egypt wouldn't do it right. um, because there's the s- scepter of of a, of, a, of another Nakba, in other words, a, right. a forcible expulsion of of siti- of Palestinians from Israel This happened in 1948, yeah. and e- the U.S. government is against uh, the eth- if you want to call it ethnic cleansing, yeah. uh, and so Israel is kind of uh, stuck. Well, there are far right-wing
1: radical elements in Israeli society that are saying that uh, the areas of Gaza and the West Bank should be kind of, you know, yes. all the Palestinians should be cleared out and that should become part of a, a, yeah. a single state of Israel.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, there are, there are biblically-based evangelicals in the U.S. who also, you know, have thoughts like that. So it's, 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 that's another layer of yeah. complexity to this. Uh, something that strikes me just in terms of U.S. policy now in the run-up to this, you know, in 1948, uh, from 1948, the U.N. Uh, adopted resolutions calling for a two-state solution to the problem. Right. Um, and U.S. policy has always been based on a two-state solution. We have tried to nudge, sometimes pressure Israel toward a two-state solution. Uh, we had the Oslo Accords, which went far in that direction. But, of course, it hasn't happened. Um, and really, the last time that the U.S. government pushed it all for a two-state solution was 2014 under Obama. Obama made one push in 2014. Uh, it didn't go anywhere. And at that point, Obama's administration turned toward Iran and the Iran nuclear deal. They pretty much forgot um, uh, the Palestinian cause. And, of course, when Trump came in, it was uh, a total... Uh, Uh, sort of lack of focus on Palestine. In fact, if there was any focus, it was to make life more difficult for the Palestinians in terms of aid. Uh, We moved our embassy to Jerusalem. And very importantly, the the Trump administration focused on the Abraham Accords. In other words, that focus on reconciling Israel with its Arab neighbors, create a more peaceful environment in the Middle East. And um, as Jared Kushner said, he was the architect of or the person who carried this out, uh, then all these benefits will trickle down to the Palestinians and make a more, you know, peaceful situation. I mean, the problem is that there are issues of identity, history. Right. It's not just economics, unfortunately. Right. Yep. So, you know, we, the Abraham Accords uh, did succeed. Um, a number of Arab countries reconciled, but not Saudi Arabia, right. which is the key. So when Biden came in, he... Um, uh, He was at odds with Saudi Arabia, very poor relations, critical of MBS, refusing to meet with him. But what changed the situation, you know, as I mentioned, China is interwoven. Right. In the last year or so, China has been making major political, not military, inroads into the Middle East. The latest expansion of the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, includes several key Middle Eastern countries, Saudi Arabia, UAE. Um, and suddenly, the Biden administration goes. What? And, and plus, uh, China now is dealing with Saudi Arabia uh, without the dollar, right? And and they're they're, they're, they're talking about the petro yuan now. So suddenly, the Biden administration realized, oh my God, we got to get back close to the Saudis. Yeah. And so for the past eight months or so, the focus has been to try to reconcile Saudi Arabia and Israel. That's been the big push. Um, Jake Sullivan wrote an article in Foreign Affairs on the eve of October 7th that came out saying that the Middle East has not been more peaceful in decades. Right. Um, and he's been, you know, obviously ridiculed a bit for this. Um, and Hamas spokespeople have said that actually the, the Al-Aqsa storm, as they call it, was to get um, to scuttle the right. Saudi-Israeli uh, reconciliation that we were pushing. Right. So um, that doesn't justify for a split second what they did, but that does seem to be the context. And so now the the Biden administration is coming back to the two-state solution. Uh, For example, in Jake Sullivan's article, there was no mention of a two-state solution in foreign affairs. Since the administration has asked foreign affairs to put that in, the online edition, to insert references to a two-state solution uh, after the fact. Um, And that is our official position now. Yeah. We we want a two-state solution. We want the um, Palestinians to be in charge in Gaza, uh, ideally um, Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority, but who have no uh, – whereas Israel is, is saying, no, we're going to be in charge. Yeah. Uh, and so between Israel and the U.S. right now, there are these differences on how to go forward. And it's very hard to see where this goes because, frankly, uh, Israel and also we are paying a very high price. We are. Um, you know, we've had to veto a number of resolutions, and in the global, global south, most of the world outside of Europe, uh, we're taking a big hit yep. in terms of our soft power. I mean, uh, one, um, I think, African diplomat said recently that, you know, the, the American vetoes show that for the West, uh, Ukrainian lives are more important than Palestinian lives. Yep. And we're seeing a generational gap we are. developing in the U.S., Yes. Uh, a more diverse, younger uh, American cohort uh, is very opposed to you know the, the our generation, kind of the 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 boomers, y- you know, we, we, I mean, we we were really deeply committed to Israel. Yeah. The younger generation uh, they, they they didn't see Exodus, they don't remember you know all the history that's going on, um, and so actually an NBC poll a week or two ago showed that. Among Americans, eighteen to thirty-five, seventy percent, seven zero, oppose Biden's foreign policy. Right. This could be an issue in the election. Serious, uh, very serious. In, in twenty twenty-four. Yeah. So the all the implications of this crisis are 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 just myriad. Yeah.
1: What I find interesting is, uh, I mean, you hit upon it, and uh, when it first happened, when the when the Hamas launched that attack into Israel uh, from Gaza, my first thought was that it, it is Iran. Directing one of their proxies, Hamas, to try and scuttle the deal that Israel and Saudi Arabia were approaching, that would have seen a Saudi ambassador, as I understand it, being appointed to Gaza and the potential of significant economic support yeah. being flooded into Gaza to help that that, yeah. that situation. No, there were big plans. Yeah, and, and you know, if Mohammed bin Salman has really changed his his stripes to a certain extent, I mean, I, I, there's no way you can take away what what happened with. Uh, Jamal Khashoggi, uh, the assassination. But I, I think it's, it's pretty clear that Mohammed bin Salman has been trying to be uh, a, a true statesman in the region, yeah. uh, brokering a lot of different deals, trying to change Saudi Arabia's economy from being so focused on oil and gas to a, a more broad, yes. uh, diversified economy if i if i were him right now i would cut a deal immediately <laughs> with israel uh and recognize a two state a second state a palestinian state and then get all of my arab friends to to join in on that and try and go in and and deal with hamas right away because hamas is a client of iran yeah and so hezbollah hamas and the houthi's are all iranian client uh proxy uh, terror groups, essentially, yep. uh, n- none of them are accepted by the Arab states. Right. Exactly. So it's a it's a very complex situation. Yeah,
0: and on that, I, I think th- I think the assessment in Washington is that that Iran did not know about about the Hamas attacks. Um, um, I mean that, that that's Bill Burns has said. Um, the, in fact, the, the, they 've expressed irritation with Hamas and maybe a been a little less supportive, who knows, but the problem for MBS is that a re- this last week there was a, a major poll done in saudi arabia ninety six percent of Saudis think that all Arab countries should cut all ties with israel yeah ninety six So I think that there are limitations to what MBS can do in this context. Emotions are high. And as long as these images are coming out of Gaza, it's hard to see any Arab leader um, moving too fast. I think that the long-term goal for Saudi Arabia is to reconcile with Israel. No question about it.
1: So the question is, you know, the the Israeli government uh, under Netanyahu, this coalition that he formed uh, to, to come back to power, is this going to be a Pyrrhic victory for them to destroy Hamas in the manner that they're doing it by, you know, do they lose the war, the long-term strategy, yeah. by losing any support across the entire Arab world and in and, and many parts of the
0: world as yeah, a whole? That's the real danger. And, I mean, I'm not a military expert on this, but there are some indications that defeating Hamas is not an easy prospect. No, no, no. Um, and, and that it's not clear what the odds are how long this might take. Well, the other
1: question is, because of the methodology that the IDF is using, uh, c- causing as many casualties, yes. how, many, how many new Hamas-adherent fighters are they creating in this
0: process? Well, you know, the cardinal rule of counterinsurgency right. is that you separate out the right. radical group from the general population. You don't forge them together. Right. You do everything you can to protect the actual civilian population. Yeah, Exactly. And everything you can do to, to separate them. Yeah, yeah. And, and, um, and and of course the other aspect of this is the economic Right. I don't know if we, if we want to talk about that at all. but uh, Well,
1: uh, we could, but uh, uh, we're starting to run a little bit low on time. Now, I do have permission from <laughs> Jeff Johnson yes, uh, to go overtime today. <laughs> Okay, uh, And I want to get into our, our third segment here, but before I do that, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. I'm your host John Olson. Our guest today is Tom Hanson, who serves as diplomat in residence at the Elworth School at the University of Minnesota Duluth, and we're looking at current global affairs. Uh, so Tom, I want to take us into a lightning round. A lightning round. Oh boy, a lightning round. Okay. <laughs> and I want to ask you to keep your comments brief on the <laughs> next. I'll try. You know, uh, it's hard. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a lengthy list of topics. Yeah. This goes back to Max Hastings' uh, commentary about, you know, 183 different uh, conflict areas around the world yeah. today yeah. or tensions that have risen. Uh, not all of these are going to be conflicts, but m- many of them will be. I would just like your quick thoughts on on some of these. Yes. The first one is the Sudanese Civil War. Yeah. Where do we stand on that?
0: So Sudan has been racked with conflict for, for, for decades, really. You know, it was, it was two, two decades ago that the Janjaweed <laughs> militia was running rampant um, uh, on, on the Darfur issue. And lo and behold, today, uh, that militia is back again in a new guise. It's called the uh, Rapid Support Force, the RSF. Um, th- th- that group uh, made a deal with President Al Bashir some years ago uh, in staging a coup, but that alliance between the current president and this these, this militia broke down eight months ago, and so it's it's a, it's a civil war that's going on and um, it's spreading. Um, you know, Sudan is near the black the Red Sea, and this adds to the uh, the uh, uncertainties in the Red Sea now, where you know we're having uh, Houthi. Uh, rebels shooting at vessels. Uh, We have a a, a force, a NATO combined force to try to stabilize it. So so Sudan and its civil war play into that, um, you know, it's resource rich. So, but as I say, Sudan has been in, in conflict like this for decades. Yeah,
1: according to some of the data I hear, the UN says about five million people have been displaced yeah. in this conflict alone. Yeah. Uh, One point three million Sudanese have fled abroad during yeah. the fighting. Uh, they say only about twelve thousand have died. That's the official number. Right. I suspect that number is significantly higher based on uh, on, on the conflict. Yep. Uh, the Venezuela Guyana crisis. Uh, yep. Now, this is Venezuela has basically run a referendum to. And they claim uh, roughly two thirds of the nation of Guyana as their own. Uh, that this goes back to a a, a deal that was cut a hundred and some years ago. Uh, but Brazil has been mobilizing troops up to the Venezuela border because mm-hmm. Venezuela is threatening to invade and seize uh, this part
0: of uh, Guyana. What, what, what's your take on this uh, situation? So, as you say, this goes back to 1899, uh, and the arbitral, you know when it was British Guyana, yeah. uh, and Venezuela struck a deal, um, and Venezuela. Uh, over the decades, has challenged that finding periodically. That this is not the first time that they've asserted themselves. Uh, they've never attacked. They've never tried to take it. But it's always been a, a lingering problem. The referendum theoretically got 95 percent support in Venezuela. I mean, we can we can see whether that's true or not. Um, but this this region is called um, Essequibo. Um, it's the western part of Guyana, uh, about the size of Florida. What really has Su- supercharged this issue is that major oil findings right. have been discovered by ExxonMobil. Um, th- this little slice of Guyana uh, in a few years will be producing more oil than Venezuela <laughs> itself. And so the stakes are, you know, it's a little bit reminiscent of Iraq and Kuwait. Yeah. It, once again, a, a province that Iraq never accepted as separate and with oil. Um, so uh, I, there have been agreements struck. I think that it 's not much danger of conflict now, but it is slowly uh heating up uh, the u s is increasing its military cooperation with Guyana um, as we speak. The British are sending a naval patrol vessel um, the HMS Trent, I wonder if that was involved in the Falklands. Um, uh, it was not. Um, okay, it was not, because you're the HMS, expert. HMS,
1: well, that was HMS Endurance. Okay. And so this whole situation has reminded me very much yes. of the Falklands War of 82, or the military junta in command, in charge of Argentina, the economy was in a total shambles. Yep. So they strike up the issue of this nationalist issue of uh, the Malvinas, uh, which is the Falklands, uh, being their territory, and they launch a war to take back the Malvinas uh, as a way to to distract the, the, the population from the how bad the economy was. Yeah, and, that's what
0: immediately what I thought of. Was and the, you're right. absolutely right, John, because Maduro has an election coming that's up next right, year, yep. so a lot of this is in that you know. I mean. It, Venezuela's army is about one hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah. Uh, uh, the the the, the Guyana is about three thousand. Yeah. So I mean, you know, this. So anyway, it's. I think it's. It's. I doubt it's going to explode, but it's an issue that uh, you know, oil is involved, and this yeah. is. Yeah. Uh, okay, so coups in
1: Africa. There's been a spate of them, mostly in Francophone Africa. Yep. And you you're a, you've been a, a watcher of France for some time. Yeah. Do you speak fluent French? I do. Yeah. Well, so you're you're probably tied into what's been going on.
0: Yeah, and the French have been drawing back. Um, There have been a series of coups which have affected uh, the French presence. Uh, Mali, Burkina Faso in recent, in the last year or so, and now, most importantly, in Niger, Mm -hmm. uh, which had become the main base for Western forces trying to fight um, Islamic uh, militias in the Sahel. And so to be basically kicked out of Niger. You know, the, the the French ambassador left. They closed their embassy just last week, the right. French. Um, and of course we had people in Niger too. Uh, and so this was a major setback. The, the Wagner Group <coughs> of Russia has come into all those places. Right. Uh, that, that was Prigozhin's actually main uh, activity, even more than Ukraine. Uh, and so... Um, you know, Africa is the future. Uh, it's estimated that 40% of all people will be living in Africa by the end of the century. Uh, tremendous resources. Uh, China is super involved there already. Um, you know, it's, it's, I mean, the instability in Africa comes from so many, so many uh, issues. There's hyperinflation now because of Ukraine, of, of food um, and of energy. Climate change is impacting exactly that part. of. That's one of the worst places on Earth for climate change. So um, uh, the general instability of coups and uh, Islamic militants um, uh, comes from those underlying factors. And, and we're trying to make Africa more of a priority. We, we, uh, 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 Biden had a, an Africa summit last fall, but we were, we're not following up much, and we have no diplomats there. Believe it or not, John, in some of our embassies in, uh, in Africa, the number one official, highest ranking is a first-tour officer.
1: Is that because the Senate has not moved forward in confirmations, or it's a
0: combination of that and of just the State Department not making a priority um, and and being slow? And so and China is—I mean—I th- I think they outnumber us in diplomats, maybe ten to one, yeah. at least in Africa. So uh, yeah, that instability and and of course it is a center now for for Islamic radicalism. Uh, so uh, yeah, a hell for sure, very now. concerning. Uh, how about uh, Argentina's new president, Javier Milei? Well uh, what are
1: your thoughts on that
0: situation well I mean once again an ongoing situation uh, you know Argentina used to be one of the wealthiest countries in the world in the early 20th century, and somehow it just uh, has been a constant victim of inflation um, and monetary instability over the years in many many argentines hold dollars right they, they just don 't trust uh the currency um, and Once again, they they have been experiencing hyperinflation. And so when Millet ran, uh, he promised to tamp down the inflation um, with very libertarian, I think you can say hyper-libertarian, policies. Um, He wanted to make the dollar the currency of the country at one point, which of course is unrealistic. But he is going to peg the peso to the dollar. Um, uh, He uh, vowed to cut back the government, a lot, and he's just announced five thousand uh, senior dip, uh, uh, officials will be let go now. Um, but the problem is that his long-term reforms are worsening the short-term inflation. Yeah, which is way beyond what it was when he first came in. And so, uh, once again, the the country is um, is struggling uh, with inflation. People are spending the money as soon as they get it. Right. Right. Um, and so, I don't know what his prospects are going forward. He, he's he's destabilizing the place. You know, I kind of think a little bit, you know, uh, the Trump administration plans to cut back on government, like, majorly when they come in. I mean, uh, a lot of senior bureaucrats, you know, to sort of drain the swamp, as they say. So this may be kind of a precursor, <laughs> watching what's happening in Argentina. Yeah to what may happen here if things go that way.
1: be interesting. Yeah. Uh, Japan uh, recently cut a bunch of deals with, uh, with the ASEAN uh, partnership, uh, a- and uh, I would say that Japan just made a huge uh, investment into the, the self-defense forces. Uh, but let's, let's take the, uh, the deal with the ASEAN partners first. Uh, what thoughts do you have on that?
0: Well, that actually comes in the context of what I mentioned before, and that's the regional comprehensive economic partnership, which China is also part of. This is a larger framework that is deepening supply chains. And so uh, Japan's deal with the ASEAN countries kind of comes within that structure. Um, interestingly enough, uh, it's not just uh, Japan that's, that's majorly trading with ASEAN. Um, last year, or actually I think this summer, uh, it was reported that China's trade with ASEAN now exceeds their trade with us. Really? Yes. Wow. No, as I say, this, this agreement signed two or three years ago is leading to a ma- – it's almost like China joining the WTO. Yeah. Huh. It, it's very similar. And actually, in the past uh, quarter, China's trade with the global south exceeded its trade with the U.S., the EU, and Japan combined. As I said before, there's major restructuring going on yeah. on both sides. And so China is – and, and I, I think that Russia, getting back to that, wants to turn and plug into this. They don't care about the bolts. Frankly, yeah. anymore, they're looking the other way. Once, once they get what they want in Ukraine, that's my surmise.
1: That, that's a good estimate. So, Japan uh, approved a record defense budget increase for fiscal year twenty-four. It's sixteen and a half percent
0: higher than what
1: they've uh, they've spent in the past, up to uh, almost uh, fifty-six billion dollars now. Uh, wh- why are they doing such a heavy increase in spending? We are
0: urging them to very much. Uh, you know, sh- uh, Shinzo Abe uh, uh, when he was Prime Minister, I mean, in the tradition of his father, uh, who was also Prime Minister, um, uh, Nobosuke Kishi, uh, wants a more militarized Japan and, and wants, wanted to break free of some of the strictures of World War II. And we are encouraging them now with an eye to China. We're not going to encourage them to go nuclear, of course. Right. Um, but they could they could very easily do that in a heartbeat yeah um, as could Germany, and so that 's why our presence there is so important uh, that we that we that our Asian allies trust us, yeah,
1: same thing with South Korea,
0: yeah because there 's no security architecture in Asia that is similar to nato, and you know it's it 's still a very fluid uh, security situation in Asia, yeah uh, and so we really have to be careful out yeah. there,
1: good point. Uh, the Indian uh, courts just uh, gave out a ruling on Jammu and Kashmir, which could be somewhat destabilizing. Uh, very much in line with what uh, Prime Minister Modi has been after for some time now, who's a uh, Hindu nationalist. Uh, where, where, where do you see this going in Jammu and Kashmir?
0: Well, you know, it's it's a source of tension between Pakistan and uh, uh, and India. I know, you know, some people think that actually a conflict that could go nuclear at some point is Kashmir, because both Pakistan and India have nuclear weapons. Um, So Modi, you know, a a year or two ago, um, declared that Kashmir's semi-autonomous status was over. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, that's been implemented since then, and and the court basically uh, approved that now. It's official. Um, There have been uh, terrorist attacks uh, in in Kashmir, the you know the, the, the Muslim pop, majority, Muslim population there is not happy about this, um, and so it's just it's festering. It's festering, and India, you know, India is a close ally. But if you look at what they're doing, this was a I mean, Modi is a Hindu nationalist. Um, this was a fairly provocative move, move to, to basically declare Kashmir uh, no longer autonomous. Uh, you know, there's rumblings of Indian assassination campaigns right. in the West, Canada. Uh, apparently a plot was thwarted here in the u.s yep and we're kind of asking modi to explain this and i know from indian scholars in america that uh hindu nationalist uh harassment of scholars anybody who kind of departs from that line uh, receives threats and harassment in, in american universities right so this is a topic of conversation with modi you know he uh he's doing certain things in india but when they start to spill over right uh, that becomes a problem, especially when we want them to be a democracy in our struggle with autocracy. Yeah.
1: And, and they are the largest, you know, by population democracy on the planet. They Absolutely. have in, incredible participation in every election. I mean, it's yep. something like 90, 91, 92 yep. percent, uh, which is way far higher than we get and in the And their economy States. is coming up now yeah. as, as, as yeah. production
0: is moving out of yeah. China. You know, yeah. India is one of the places that's. And, and you mentioned the BRICS earlier, so Brazil, Russia, India,
1: China, and South Africa. I, I mean, India as a, as a democracy, same thing. With Brazil, are part of this uh, this sort of alternative uh, global economy uh, agreement, and we'll yeah. talk about that more more of that yeah. in, in a minute. Yeah. Uh, so, another one you, you mentioned this briefly that Germany was deploying troops to the Baltics first time since World War II. Yeah, uh, what what do you make of that? I mean, Germany has really shifted gears since Russia invaded Ukraine. This is a significant thing for the Germans to be deploying forces, combat forces, uh, into other NATO allied nations.
0: Abs- it's part of what they call the Zeitenwende or the change of of era eras. Um, we, as with Japan, we're encouraging uh, Germany to get more involved. We want the Europeans to do more and to take on more, especially with Ukraine. Um, and the Schultz government and you know the Greens uh, are probably the, the most pro-NATO party in Germany. The question, though, is becoming: What's happening beneath the surface? Yeah, uh, because uh, there are signs that uh, radical parties, the the, the alternative for, for Germany, AFD, also a new party on the left, are gaining uh, a lot of strength. They are anti-NATO. They are for stopping all aid to Ukraine, um, and so the the German situation is 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 tricky. Also, the economic results of our sanctions. Uh, on Ukraine, have been actually beneficial for the U.S. Yeah. Our arms industry and our uh, natural gas industry are booming because we've become the alternative source for Europe. Um, Germany, just the opposite. Their production costs have gone way up. Uh, Energy is more... uh, And, you know, our subsidies uh, trying to bring uh, companies here are actually hurting Germany. Right. So they talk about the deindustrialization of Germany that's underway. So... Germany bears watching. they are a solid ally they 've had this change, but um, there 's a lot of tension underneath and and I mean there 's a populist movement underway in Europe in general there is, and it does affect Germany. Uh, there will be elections for the European Parliament coming up this spring. A lot of people are predicting that that populist parties all through Europe are going to do really well in that election so um, yeah Germany is uh, is really key but and, but for now, and hopefully for the future, they are a much more active partner uh, in NATO.
1: I'm going to throw a curveball at you. Brazilian legislature has just <laughs> used chat GPT to draft
0: some new laws. What are, yeah. what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, uh, you know, shades of things to come, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is the town of Porto Alegre. Um, and the you know, the issue uh, that they did this was that, 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 that this was legislation that would assured that there'd be no charge to to uh, Brazilian citizens replacing their water meters that had been stolen by thieves. So the, and, and so some, somebody asked ChatGPT to come up with the legislation. It did. It came up with several ideas that, that they hadn't thought of yeah. and that they thought were pretty good. So they just passed it and then later revealed that this was... and. Actually, they're doubling down. They're saying, hey, this was actually better than we could have done. And, uh, hey, this is the future. Uh, you know, we're this election in the U.S. will probably have more uh, deep fakes, yeah. uh, more uh, incidents. Uh, people using ChatGPT, Sports Illustrated got into a big, oh, big trouble. F- There's trouble. Uh, yeah. a, a, a law firm that used it, and, and ChatGPT hallucinated right. in the brief. <laughs> and uh, yeah. so we'll see. And, you know, AI, y- you know, one of the, the two other aspects of this. AI in foreign policy and in military, I mean, if we have self-steering AI military, uh, I mean, Henry Kissinger warned about this at the end of his life. Um, And there are some experts who think that there's an uh, authoritarian advantage built into the new technologies, that authoritarian countries like China will be able to implement this as part of their authoritarian system, whereas it's disruptive in a democracy. Very. Yeah. It undermines trust, yep. and democracies depend upon trust. Yeah. Uh, and so we really have to watch this carefully going it's forward. It's going to
1: be interesting. Yeah. Uh, so uh, President Erdogan in, uh, in Turkey had predicated that uh, he, he would hold up Sweden's accession to NATO until he got U.S.-made F-16s, until that agreement came through. Well, that, that has changed. Uh, He's now given his concurrence, and it has gone through committee uh, in the Turkish uh, uh, Parliament, and now it's uh, it's it's over to them to officially approve Sweden's accession to NATO. So that's a
0: that's a change for for the positive on the NATO side, but Hungary is still a holdout. So um, my understanding is that it was just this week that the Foreign Affairs Committee of the Turkish Parliament did approve this, and it's going to go forward now in Erdogan signaled already in the summer that that he would allow it, but he raised the F-16 issue with us. And I think the status there is that Biden has given positive signals, but Congress has to approve it, and that's impossible. And so I think Erdogan will let the Swedes join, even though the congressional aspect is not clear. Orban has always said that when Turkey agrees, Hungary will agree. We'll see. (laughs) So we'll see. I mean, he is uh, such a loose cannon that it's it's hard to know. Um, But, you know, Turkey's a good example of, of, of a regional power now that's emerging. It's a yeah. it's a member of NATO. Yeah, but sure. uh, you know the, the whole concept of frenemies right. is becoming uh, yeah. more relevant. So Finnish-Russian border
1: issues. Uh, Putin has said that uh, that uh, that Finland has been dragged by the West into NATO, and now that the now he's very concerned about border security issues with Finland. Uh, what do you make of that? Is that just more rhetoric? Is that th- trying to throw the West off balance?
0: Yeah, yeah, I think it's at the level of rhetoric now, although there are some serious warnings. Uh, you know, Finland has been de facto a member of—I mean, they're in the Partnership for Peace. Right. They've done a lot of the preparation for NATO membership uh, long since. You know, people don't realize that even during the Cold War, Sweden was uh, cooperating with NATO. Um, the, the documents on this came out only in the 1990s. The Swedish public was shocked. Right. During, during the Olaf Palme era, without their knowing it, Sweden was closely cooperating with NATO. Yeah. And so, um, and so the, the, the Russians know this. The Russians know that Finland has always been. But they are warning that if, if NATO places weapons yeah. in Finland, then Russia may deploy tactical nuclear weapons along Finland's border. Right. And they are uh, pushing immigrants, uh, they did this with Norway. Uh, a year or so ago, too. It's not the first time they've done this. Apparently, they've eased off on that. Um, I don't know. The Finns, they kind of know. I, the Finns and the Russians kind of understand each other, and I, you know, um, and I think the Finns will resist being pushed too far by NATO. I could be wrong, but um, but yeah. Uh, R- Russia's—we uh,
1: mentioned Russia's uh, Wagner Group operating in in uh, in Africa. Uh, that's a significant challenge for us. I I, I think we can go ahead and, yeah. and pass beyond that. Uh, one uh, one thing I'd like to bring up: we, we know that in our own border situation with Mexico—it's been a big challenge. Uh, Mexico's president uh, Andres uh, Manuel Lopez Obrador has offered to sort of step in and support the U.S. with preventing migration migrants moving north through Mexico. Yes. If the United States steps forward and starts to work with Cuba and Venezuela, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, apparently, what he's telling us now is that uh, we should lift sanctions on Cuba and Venezuela. I mean, that is the Congress is not likely to go along with that as much as they care about the immigration. We have a team actually today uh, down in down in Mexico meeting with Lopez Obrador. Because, as you know, there's there's a huge, I think, two hundred and something thousand uh, yeah, immigrant wave yeah. coming up toward the border right now. Yeah. Uh, this is getting this is getting
1: difficult. Well, so, uh, that tells that should tell us that things are really really bad in Central America.
0: Yeah, and for so many reasons. I mean, uh, violence, uh, uh, corruption, uh, economic distress. Uh, but there's also the aspect of the cell phone. You know, all around the world, people can look at their cell phone and see a better life. Right. Um, and so, you know, they always talk about push pull factors yeah. for immigration. Um, so, uh, and of course there'll be an election in Mexico next year. Um, uh, for a while, Mexico was, we, uh, was keeping a lot of the immigrants in Mexico the way Turkey does for Europe. They keep immigrants, and don't let them out. Um, that's kind of broken down a bit now. So we'll see where this goes. Uh, but as you said, We've got to get at the root causes yeah. uh, that's pushing this immigration at some point. So I have one more kind of in-depth question. I want to
1: save it for the last because I think it's a, an important strategic uh, yeah. topic for us to Absolutely. discuss. And I think uh, the topic of the BRICS will come back into this. Mm. Uh, there's been a resurgence of sort of a global non-aligned movement. There was a there was a global non-aligned movement throughout the Cold War. That sort of tapered off after the end of the Cold War. But there's been a renewed uh, non-aligned movement that's uh, that consists of – Even large democracies like India, Brazil, South Africa, some of America's uh, other partners have also shifted toward this non-aligned position on topics like Russia's invasion of Ukraine and and enabling Russia to skirt international sanctions. It's kind of a a brave new world forming today between kind of the liberal democracies of the old uh, post-World War II order, sort of the Bretton Woods uh, Accords, the rise of the BRICS, and then the the countries that are in between— that are sort of competing their needs between those two camps and the, the highest bidder sort of wins their support to a certain extent. Uh, what, should, how concerned should we be about this changing global dynamic? Well,
0: you know, it, I, I think that a lot of people in the global south, because that's what we're really talking about, um, see things in terms of a more multipolar world. Uh, in other words, they, they would even refuse the idea that there are two blocks. I mean, they don't want to be in a position to have to choose. And they see a more of a regionalizing war, uh, world in which, you know, the kind of regional dynamics are taking over. Um, and so Ukraine really revealed this to to the United States because, you know, we had, as I say, great alliance management. We thought we had a global coalition. Um, we had some support in the UN, but zero support on sanctions yeah. outside of our G7 allies, yeah. uh, whether India or all of Latin America, Africa, uh, were all trading with Russia. Um, and in fact... A couple of the key African leaders went so far as to say that Ukraine, to their mind, was was an example of of white racism, uh, because we were doing everything for Ukraine on CNN every night, but the crises in the in the in the global South get short shrift. Yeah, and so um, all of this, those things are festering. Um, if you look at UN population projections, what you would call the non-aligned, if you include India, global south. By the end of the century, it will be 85% of humanity. The West will be 8%. Right. What we The G7, what we call the West, will be only 8%. And so people are starting to call this now the global majority. Right. It's not just a non-aligned thing between and, two and things. In fact,
1: China is playing heavily on that idea. China and Russia
0: <laughs> in their summit um, uh, just before the invasion of Ukraine came out with a major statement about the global majority and how that was their focus. And so... And, and so, for example, I mean, on Gaza, we're losing the global majority again. Totally. And, and China and Russia are very effectively uh, coming in. So um, I'm afraid these are the new tectonics uh, that we'll be living with from now on. Uh, and they're largely based on demography.
1: Yeah. Again, we talk about demographics as a yeah, powerful very force. Yeah, very important. Yep. Uh, so, Tom, we mentioned at the start of the show that you, you lead the Committee on Foreign Relations, Minnesota chapter. Can you tell us a little bit more about CFR Minnesota?
0: Yeah, well, it's one of, you know, Minnesota has a, a number of really excellent uh, institutions devoted to foreign affairs, um, a lot of volunteering going on. So CFR uh, was founded in 1940 by the Council on Foreign Relations in New York, um, patterned on the council. Um, the reason being the isolationism mm. that was rampant in, in this part of the country especially um, and so a number of committees were found founded around the U.S. at the same time. We were one of the very first. Okay. Uh, when it first was founded, you know, I mean, senators, the governor, you know, president of the university, they, it was really an elite um, organization. The idea was that, that things would trickle down into the population. So um, we're still based on a kind of, I guess, outmoded model a little <laughs> bit um, where we have monthly dinners. We, we're a membership organization. Like the CFR, uh, we bring in excellent speakers. Um, we're not as much a public-directed uh, um, organization the way, say, Global Minnesota is, yeah. which is one of the great institutions in the U.S., working in schools, uh, a lot of public events. We partner with them on a lot, you know, with, on a lot of things, and we're involved. But we've retained this, this model um, uh, uh, as a membership uh, organization. We've been going for 84 years, um, you know, right now the Chicago Council, uh, which is more like a public-oriented institution, is having tremendous problems—economic problems. They have high overhead. They're right downtown in Chicago. We're kind of like a floating crap game. I mean, we—you know—we we just have our membership and we have dinners, and and we're very sustainable, <laughs> yeah. but a little bit outmoded, frankly. Um, but it's, it's yeah. So our membership maybe is about 150. Okay.
1: Yeah. So you also, uh, for Global Minnesota, one of the things you do specifically for them is, uh, is you present the annual foreign policy update, which is hands down the most popular event every single year at Global Minnesota. Hundreds of people will turn out uh, to hear your thoughts on, on what's happening around the world, your insights as to, you know, America's uh, national security challenges and opportunities. Can you tell us, remind us of the date and time for that and where people can go to register? Yes,
0: absolutely. So it's going to be on uh, January 31st. Uh, in the evening it'll be at the uh, uh, Kauffman uh Kaufman uh Union uh auditorium over at the U at the Kaufman uh, and it's it's a huge space. Uh registration is through Global Minnesota which is globalminnesota.org okay. all one word um and uh yeah i mean it's a it's an annual event and it's just a kind of a a chance to look ahead and i must say the crystal ball is pretty murky yeah uh this year but yeah. uh yeah uh You know, it's never been more important, in my view, for our citizenry to to follow these events because more and more they're impinging on our domestic politics. As I say, more than usual, I think foreign policy will be part of our election this time. Yeah, Uh, and
1: that's really, I mean, one of the reasons why we started this show, uh, uh, Jeff Johnson and I were talking before you and I came on today to do the show today, that there's there's this, I think, uh, kind of a a lack of understanding of just how important uh, global affairs are and how they impact us here in the upper Midwest. And so having these kinds of dialogues, I think, really helps us to better understand yeah. the world and our place in it and why things that and John, happen over there matter.
0: And, John, I want to say that, that your program here, uh, I think, is one of the best nationwide. Oh, And I know you have a nationwide audience, too. But, I mean, I mean the, folk, the kind of people you've had on, I mean, each week how much How much work is that to do this on a weekly basis and bring in the kind of people so anyway, uh, kudos to you for and, and to the station for doing this and i i I think that that your show will find a new home uh, and will continue well we 'll we'll see about that we 'll see yeah.
1: So, Tom Hanson, you, you were kind enough to join me on my very first show of National Security this week uh, on January 6th of 2021. We didn't really know where this show would go. Mm. Uh, it's grown into something that's been a, a, a lot of fun for me and I hope educational for all of our listeners. Uh, you are kind enough to join us today, December 27th of 2023, for our final show of 2023 and the final episode of National Security this week here on, on KYMN Radio uh, thank you so much for spending so much time with us this morning.
0: John, it's been a pleasure and an honor, and thank you for all that you do for our community and for, uh, for knowledge in our community of, of the world. Folks, that closes this final edition of National Security This Week here
1: on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. Uh, I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. It has been an honor and a privilege to spend an hour with you each week as we learned about American national security challenges and opportunities over the course of the last three years. Thank you for being a listener to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. From the KYMN Radio studio here in the heart of Northfield, Minnesota, have a great finish your week to your year, year and a safe and happy new year and a joyful, productive, and fulfilling 2024. So long, everyone.
0: You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.